You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Today, we're excited. Today's episode has a lot coming in the world of agriculture because it is going to be a busy day. Of course, today we will be getting the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates from the USDA. That'll be coming out here at 11 o'clock this afternoon. That's got the trade in the commodity markets, keeping a close eye on things. So far to start the day, corn, beans, and wheat are all higher there in the markets. We're going to talk about the livestock market in detail here in the next segment with Dr. Daryl Peel of Oklahoma State University. He's an agribusiness professor down there. Keeps a close eye on what's happening throughout the cattle sector. And then in segment three, we're going to talk through those WASD details with Arlen Suderman. He's the chief commodity as economist with Stonex and spends all of his time keeping track of the factors that are moving these markets. And with today's reports incorporating that shocking acreage data from just two weeks ago, there's a lot of room for adjustments. The USD could make, and Arlen will highlight what several of those might be later on in this episode. And then in segment four, we're going to check in with our friends at the Owner Operators Independent Drivers Association, the Trucking Association called OIDA. They've got a new class they're developing for entrepreneurs, for folks looking to start their own business. They want to get into trucking. There's a lot more to think of than just buying a truck and making sure your tires are inflated and your brakes are good. Narita's going to talk to us about that. Maybe a way to utilize some of those assets the farm has in a little bit greater detail. We are hoping to have a conversation here yet uh, in the next couple of minutes about bioplastics. There has been some push on bioplastics. Of course, we've had the chance each month as part of the monthly grind with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association to talk about new uses for corn. And one of the new uses that we've highlighted several times over the past year is corn replacing plastics in packaging materials. And of course, we think about corn replacing plastics. What we're doing is this corn, this bio-based product is replacing plastic, which is a fossil fuel-based product. So of course, is from an environmental standpoint, the idea is we're limiting the impact of that uh, crude oil pumping to be converted into plastic. However, there's recently been some pushback on bioplastics as environmental groups are now saying that pushing too fast in the direction of bioplastics is going to lead to forest loss. It's going to lead to land use change, and that could have negative environmental impacts. Well, we like to keep track of both sides of this story, so we'll be checking in with our friends from the Corn Growers Association in the future about how corn is adding to the stockpile of bioplastics and, I think, doing it in an environmentally sustainable way. We're also going to talk about some of the challenges that could come as this industry grows. As of right now, less than 1% of all plastic being produced on a year-to-year -year basis is bioplastic, but the growth, growth rate is accelerating very, very quickly. It's up substantially just since 2018. And these are products being manufactured in the U.S., largely out of corn starch. In other places around the world, it's sugarcane or sugarcane-based biopolyethylene. And we're even seeing some vegetables be used uh, as this, the starches from those vegetables around the world. Uh, we will be talking about this in greater detail as time goes on. It does not look like we are going to be able to make our connection happen here for this interview, but that's okay. We will bring that conversation a little bit later on. We've got some other news developing here in the world of agriculture, another story that we have been watching for quite some time. I know the industry is, is hopeful that we're turning a corner, but that's the highly pathogenic avian influenza. Rates of infections and outbreaks are continuing to decline across North America. It's good news for America's poultry flocks, but there are still global concerns about the impact of this disease. I saw it last in 2015, then this most recent outbreak started two summers ago. Now as the world hopefully sees its impact start to wane this year. Countries are grappling with how to best prepare for another outbreak down the line. And several companies are exploring novel medications 
vaccines as a way to treat HPAI. France is one of the leaders of this vaccine movement for HPAI. Back in April, the French government uh, launched a program to vaccinate ducks against avian influenza, and that was where they saw their, their flocks most impacted, led to culling of millions of ducks across France. But there is no accepted vaccine. The French government announced today they have chosen German company Beringer Ingelheim to supply the 80 million doses of bird flu vaccines needed for this campaign. Uh, BI believes they will be prepared and they are looking for this vaccination campaign to start in October. That's according to the Ag Ministry there in France. It'll be interesting to see how this vaccination impacts France's ability to export duck. Now, I am not entirely sure how big of an export market that is in France, but when I talk to American producers and the topic of vaccine against HPAI gets brought up, there are immediate concerns that perhaps our export partners won't be willing to take American poultry if it has been treated with a vaccine. So France is going to be the trial case. We'll see how this shakes out over the coming months. Again, that vaccination plan is expected to begin in October of this year. It's coming up just around the corner. Back in the U.S., of course, environmental issues still under hot discussion in Washington, D.C. And yesterday, the Biden administration announced through the USDA an additional $300 million in expenses specifically designed to quantify greenhouse gas emissions generated by agriculture. The other thing they will be looking on is what sort of potential carbon savings can be gained by doing certain farming practices. $300 million. Uh, this is com funding coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act. And this is a big issue. Folks who are our regular listeners of this program know that when we speak to our friends in the biofuels industry, when we speak to our friends in the machinery industry, there is so much confusion around the models used to estimate the amount of carbon either generated or saved by these programs that sometimes it can be kind of next to meaningless to try and put some numbers down. This, this money coming out of the USDA is going to be used to expand its data collection and analysis capacity. They are also going to work to build a regional network dedicated to studying, studying rather soil carbon sequestration. They say this is a critical tool in the agency's approach to cutting farm emissions. However, even the USDA says there just isn't good science on how much carbon these soils can sequester. Secretary Vilsack of uh, USDA said, quote, we've got to get the science and innovation right. This is going to allow us to know what works and what doesn't when it comes to carbon capture and sequestration. Those funds will be rolled out here over the next year. They will be targeting specifically programs that can better assess and manage the carbon impact in agriculture. Also have good news for those sheep producers. USDA's AMS service announced yesterday $300,000 going out in available grant funding. This is going out to help strengthen sheep production and marketing. This is part of the Sheep Production and Marketing Grant Program. This is about $2 million that the uh, AMS has awarded the National Sheep Industry Improvement Center, and this money went out back in 2019. It's been rolling out at about $300,000 a year, and it gets used into products that can uh, do some critical research on pathogens affecting sheep flocks, and uh, there are projects such as expanding marketing in areas that could be experiencing bottlenecks. We'll be checking in with our friends from the National Sheep Industry Improvement Center as they get close to rolling out those funds for the 2023 grant cycle. Folks, stick with us. We're going to dig into the cattle industry with Dr. Daryl Peel of Oklahoma State University here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month, we sit down with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. We like to look into the uses for that corn crop once it leaves your farm. Joining us this week for The Monthly Grind, we're going to be talking with Troy Schneider of Colorado and Denny Vinacotter, corn grower from Ohio. Troy, I understand you've got a road trip coming up in the next couple of weeks. Where are you headed? Not only myself, but about 100 other team members from the seven action teams at National Corn Growers Association will be going to Washington, D.C., July 6th. 
17th through the 20th for Corn Congress. The 17th and 18th, we have action team meetings. And the 19th, we'll be going to the Hill to visit legislators. And then on the 20th, we will have Corn Congress where we conduct business twice a year. Denny, no doubt you'll be talking about the Consider Corn Challenge. Can you fill us in? So we have 20 entries in it, biomaterial products, different technologies that will use corn in a different way than animal feed. Thank you, Denny and Troy. Folks, learn more at ncga.com and tune in July 18th for the next Monthly Grind. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today. And as I come to you here from the AOA Global Broadcast Headquarters, we're dealing with some severe weather right now. Reports of up to an inch of rain has fallen here in central Iowa, but we're not the only place that's been getting moisture recently. Part of the most hit by the drought regions of the Southern Plains have also seen some moisture develop, and that's got the cattle market percolating down there in the Southern Plains. Joining us now for an update on that is Dr. Daryl Peel, agribusiness professor at Oklahoma State University. Dr. Peel, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, you bet. Good morning. Morning, Mike. Let's talk about the weather down there in Oklahoma. It has been bone dry, Dr. Peel, for almost three years, but it seems like that's starting to change. It has changed dramatically in the last uh, five or six weeks, in particular just the last couple of weeks. Uh, we have received uh, wave after wave of uh, rain um, that uh, adds up to quite a lot in some of those hardest hit drought areas in western Oklahoma. Uh, so we've seen a dramatic turnaround uh, in our, our pasture and range conditions in, in just the past month or so. Dr. Peel, I think back to images coming out of the Southern Plains one year ago. I mean, de depths of the summer 2022, there were lines of trailers outside sale barns doing some herd liquidation. With this rainfall, has that come to a stop in Oklahoma? I, I think it has in Oklahoma. And, you know, I think more broadly, we still have some drought areas, obviously north of here. There's still some drought up in Kansas and Nebraska, uh, a bit now over into Missouri. But I think, uh, you know, from a broader market standpoint, I think we've made enough improvement in pasture conditions around the country that we're probably not seeing on a national level, um, you know, much continuing liquidation. Certainly in some areas there may still be some, but, uh, you know, I think we're starting to turn this thing around and sort of stabilize these uh, cattle numbers, particularly the beef cow herd uh, out in the country. 
Well, that's got me curious because as I think over the last couple of years, sort of the relief valve in the beef market has been the ongoing uh, pull cow slaughter. We've had a lot of, of lean meat available, Dr. Peel. If we're going to stop liquidating the cow herd, if we've got folks retaining heifers here potentially over the next couple of months, this beef supply is going to get even tighter, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, we're just getting into that process. We've, you know, beef production has been falling this year uh, every week, but one, I think on a year over year basis so far, but really it's just the beginning because the real squeeze on cattle numbers and, and resulting beef production comes when we start that uh, herd uh, rebuilding process. As you mentioned, we first will reduce cow slaughter. I think that's probably happening or beginning to happen more uh, significantly. And then heifer retention will pick up as well over the next few months. And that's going to really put a squeeze on uh, available cattle supplies and ultimately beef production. Dr. Peel, have we seen any indications of heifer retention starting to accelerate quite yet? Or are we just still assuming that's coming down the line? Well, I don't think we have any data that shows it yet. Uh, now we have an upcoming mid-year cattle inventory report that might tell us that heifer retention has started. So we'll be looking at that beef replacement heifer number uh, in that report, but it may not show it as well at this point in time. Uh, you know, I, I, th I think you're, there's a bit of a lag between what folks out in the country have started. It'll be maybe a few months before it shows up in the data. If you look at things like heifer slaughter, um, you know, that hasn't really come down very much. It looks like it's starting to come down. But of course, that's uh, that's after the feeding period. So there's a time lag between when we stop placing heifers in feedlots and when it shows up as reduced heifer slaughter. So we could be in that interim period right now where heifer retention has started, just uh, just begun, but it really hasn't shown up in our data yet. All right. Well, that data is always interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that mid-year cattle inventory report, Dr. Peel. When these come out, typically I, I sort of associate them as, as academic. It's just good to have the information. I don't know that the market trades that info year to year. But this year, given all the concerns about beef supply, could we see it be a market mover? Well, it might be. Uh, you know, this mid-year report is going to be a little bit tricky because I think we're, as an industry, I think we're in this transition between liquidation and stabilizing and then thinking about rebuilding and and where this report falls is going to you know it's it's kind of uncertain what it's going to show us i think we had herd liquidation in the first half of the year and i sort of expect this report to document that in terms of the size of the beef cow herd uh, but at the same time by the time we get to the end of the year we may be on our way towards uh trying to rebuild a little bit so uh, so this report will be, I, I, there'll be a lot of eyes on it in terms of the herd inventory, the heifer, uh, heifer number, uh, and then, you know, kind of confirming our, this will be our first estimate of this year's calf crop as well. Oh, that's right. And of course, with the reduced size, uh, do you have an expectation of what you think we might see on that print, uh, Dr. Peel? Well, again, uh, you know, I think the, the report overall will show that we, we're smaller than we were a year ago comparing this report. Um, on a year-over-year -year basis, so the beef cow herd will be smaller, uh, the calf crop will be smaller, I think. Uh, the beef replacement heifer number, again, could be the wild card in this thing. It could still be down, but it may also show that we have started some heifer retention. So I think it, it could be up a little bit, probably not dramatically higher yet. If we are retaining heifers, we're in the early stages of that, but uh, this report could show that we ha have already started that process. All right, could see that production crunch intensifying here on the beef production side. Dr. Peel, I think that opens up the door to the next question, which is the American consumer has been willing to walk these prices higher at the meat case on beef all summer long. If production ratchets down even further, prices go even higher. Is that your expectation? And B, can the American consumer still keep writing that check? <laughs> well, you know, it, it is a question. It's one that we've been watching closely and will continue to do so. Uh, but, you know, as beef production falls, of course, one of the things that has to happen in the marketplace is we have to ration a, a limited supply. So I do think prices will go higher. I also think that it means that some people will begin to uh, cut back or change their, their purchasing behavior a little bit. Um, we haven't seen a lot of evidence yet of, you know, we talk about trading down from high-valued products to lower-valued products. There's not a, a huge indication of that yet, but we may see a bit more of that uh, as we go forward. Dr. Bale, as you think about export demand, I've got to imagine if we're crunching our beef production supply, the American consumer is probably going to secure most of it. Are you expecting sort of less than stellar beef exports in 2023 and beyond? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, if you think about the market reaction here uh, with less production, higher prices, you would expect exports to, to decrease a little bit. And we're already seeing that. In fact, we've seen year over year decreases in beef exports for the last seven months. Uh, at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see an increase in beef imports. Uh, we talked about, uh, you know, herd rebuilding and cutting cow slaughter and cow culling as a part of that process. So there's going to be a tremendous demand for lean processing beef uh, and the prices will be attractive. I think we'll probably see an increase in imports as we go forward. Dr. Peel, when we think about beef imports, and I, I think it certainly sounds like you're correct. Anytime we get tonnage down small enough, we do look to our global partners for supplying it. What type of meat, what type of beef specifically do we tend to bring in as imports? What's it competing against that's domestically produced? Well, it's, you know, in some sense, it's not really competing a lot with much of anything in the U.S. It's supplementing our supply of that lean processing beef. So when you think about uh, the, the tremendous ground beef market that we have in the U.S., we use our, uh, our lean beef from cull cows and bulls uh, as a part of that supply. But when that supply gets tight, and of course, we're matching that uh, lean processing beef with the, uh, with the fattier trimmings that come off of our fed cattle, and so uh, we'll probably pull in some additional lean supplies that actually helps us utilize the trimmings off of our feedlot uh, steers and heifers uh, to sustain that ground beef market uh, when we get into tighter supplies. All right. Now, that's a very interesting point, Dr. Peel. And while we're thinking of the, the lean beef in particular, I, I know the dairy industry is going through quite a correction right now. Milk prices are substantially lower. Is there the potential for dairy cow culling to add more to the lean meat supply as this year goes on? Yeah, in fact, so far this year, um, you know, dairy cow slaughter is up. So it's offsetting part of the decrease that we're already seeing in beef cow slaughter. So the net effect is beef cow slaughter in, or total cow slaughter, excuse me, is down on a year over year basis, but it's down significantly less than it would be if in fact the dairy uh, part of that, the dairy cow slaughter wasn't higher and offsetting part of the decrease in beef cow slaughter. All right, Dr. Peel. Well, it sounds like things are at least poised for potentials ongoing strength here in the cattle business, which means perhaps more folks are going to look to get into it. Prices are high. Interest is high. Any advice for folks not currently in the cattle business, but maybe attracted to it by these high prices before we let you go? Well, you know, yeah, we do expect stronger markets for the foreseeable future from a cattle price standpoint. We also know that there are many continuing challenges on the input side. Uh, with, you know, cost of inputs, interest, uh, interest cost and, and other things. Uh, so I think, but, you know, maybe the main thing is that uh, with, the, with the improvement generally in most areas of, of drought conditions, I think producers can think about being a little more proactive, a little bit more on the offense, if you will. We've been on the defense so much in this industry over the last couple of years because of the drought impacts. Uh, I think it's going to be nice to think about sort of uh, uh, planning ahead and, and thinking about what you'd like to do as opposed to what you have to do. Absolutely. It's great to see a roadmap with some profitable potential in it. And that's what we've got right now. Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Daryl Peel, professor of agribusiness at Oklahoma State University. Dr. Peel, thanks for joining us on AOA Today. Yeah, you're very welcome. And stick around, ladies and gentlemen. We'll drive, dive into what's expected on today's supply and demand estimates from USDA with Arlen Suderman of Stonex when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Why do you listen? I listen to radio to stay up on news, weather, current events around the local community. It keeps me up to date with everything going on in the world. It kind of just takes my mind off of the drive, getting some relevant information that's in time. It's always nice to know what's going on. Okay, what can I do? Well, I'll listen to the what's coming up and you can plan your day. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. 
You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, it is WASD Wednesday, and the trade is gearing up for the latest round of world agricultural supply and demand estimates for the month of July from the USDA. Going to be very interesting to see what USDA does with yield. Will they make any changes to yield? Usually the July report is short on surprises, but it might not be the case today. The June 30th stocks and acreage report included big changes not anticipated by the trade that must now be incorporated into the balance sheets. And there are several ways USDA can do that, leaving the door open for potential surprises. The largest impact will be seen in the 23-24 balance sheet with larger corn stocks and tighter soybean stocks. Now we're going to be watching to see typically USDA kind of slow plays the yield moves if they make any in the month of July and into August as well. So that's going to be an area to watch. We'll be watching the demand side as well here in the report and some of the world balance sheets too. Now ahead of the report, grains mostly higher, led by soybeans once again. Double-digit gains there, up 11 to 13 cents. Corn is just mixed to slightly higher, and the wheat trade also fairly mixed around unchanged. A quiet day in livestock ahead of the WASD report as well, with cattle and hogs uh, really trading in two-sided trade around unchanged as we uh, see the livestock sector kind of waiting for the WASD report to get released to see any impact it could have on feed prices in the grains. We'll be expecting more cash cattle activity as we go later at the day and later in the week. Energy market crude oil up 85 cents a barrel, 75.68. The stock market higher, the Dow up 283 points. The latest consumer price index out rising 0.2% month on month in June, up from 0.1% in the month of May, but below analyst expectations. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're going to turn our focus next to the commodity markets. Might get a shock later on today when the USDA releases their July World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. Joining us now to talk through some of the potential impacts from this afternoon's USDA report is Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with Stonex. Arlen, thanks so much for joining us on AOA today. Good to be back with you, Mike. Let's talk about what's happening here, Arlen. Ahead of the report, we've got corn well, unchanged to down slightly. We've got beans up, wheat up. What is the trade anticipating as we get close to this release time? Yeah, uh, larger corn stocks and tighter soybean stocks. It really comes back to the acreage report on June 30th that USDA now has to incorporate into its 2023-2024 balance sheets. That marketing year doesn't start till September one but we are growing the crops for that marketing year now. And according to USDA on June 30th, we have 2 million more corn acres than what we anticipated, and we have 4 million fewer soybean acres than anticipated. And what was already a fairly snug balance sheet, so you take 4 million acres out, and then you put on top of that the stressful June we had that the soybean crop may not be able to recover from. That's why we've seen... Uh, soybean prices, particularly new crop soybean prices, trade up there near last winter's highs, whereas corn prices are trading near the spring lows. 
All right, Arlen. So we got a couple of big features to be watching for on this report. You mentioned that smaller bean number. Traders are anticipating it. What's the benchmark? What is the trade expecting to see as an average for the potential for the uh, soybean production? Well, for soybean production, the average trade guess is about 4.25 billion bushels uh, in a relatively narrow trading range or range of expectations overall there. I'm looking for something a little bit smaller, 4.217. The big question is, is whether USDA will reduce its yield estimate in this July report. If you look back at the last 30 years or so, and they kind of changed their well, they changed their procedures often, but they made a major change in procedures about 1994. But if we go back the last 30 years, they've changed their soybean yield in the July report, I believe, six times. Most of those times are reductions, and nor they just normally don't like to do that until the NASC committee of USDA prepares its first estimate of the year, which comes in August. So they don't like to do it. If the weather dictates or slow or fast planning pace dictates, they can make some changes and they've got formulas to, do, to go about doing that. I think because they have to already shrink the balance sheet so much in this report to account for the smaller acreage, to me that leans on the side that they will wait until August to do anything with yield. I still submitted a 51 bushel yield estimate uh, pre-report, um, which is where I'm at right now. I think we will probably end up a little bit below that in the final number, depending on how July and August play out. Um, but I don't think USDA will go there yet. Quite different scenario, kind of the opposite scenario from what we're seeing with corn. And that's still going to pull ending stocks down tight. USDA is going to have to find a way to ration demand to make the balance sheet work because minimum pipeline supplies are somewhere in that 4 to 5% of use range. You, you have to keep a certain amount of beans in the pipeline to keep it functioning. And so that means we can't draw stocks down below about 170 or so million bushels in order to keep things functioning. So USDA is going to have to cut demand. I think they're probably going to try to cut crush, failing to recognize that all the new crush capacity coming online, those investors have to prove themselves, prove those investments. They're not going to want to pull back. They're going to want to fight for the beans they have. So I think the rationing is actually going to have to come from exports. And, and I think there's a path for that to happen. The other job of the marketplace is going to be to incentivize increased production in Brazil. Typically, Brazil expands acreage about 4 to 5% per year as they bring new land into production. This year, because they've been bleeding a lot of red ink with their soybean production, the expectation was that they would expand less than 1%. So the market needs to incentivize a bigger expansion of production. The problem is new crop soybean basis is so weak right now that as as our futures prices have gone up on soybeans, their basis has weakened, and they still have not incentivized that added production yet. Arlen, oftentimes when the USDA seems like it's backed into a corner, much smaller acreage production, tough spring means potential uh, yield reduction here in soybeans. It seems to my mind they're able to find beans maybe from a year ago. They pull them ahead. They pull them back. Is there some other sneaky way we could see more beans added to the stockpile this year? That's an excellent question, <clears throat> excuse me, because you're exactly right. But in this case, we had smaller than expected stocks reports, both on March 31 and on June 30th. Now, those stocks came in pretty close to where I expected, but very much lower than what was anticipated based on the numbers that the trade expected. What that indicates is USDA likely overstated the size of last year's crop. So that makes it very difficult to pull uh, to find extra bushels someplace. I do think that they'll probably be cutting residual use uh, in order to avoid having to cut exports too much. Um, and so that'll be a factor as well. And I do think that they'll be increasing imports for the 23-24 marketing year. Look those imports that are currently around 20 million bushels to work their way up toward 35 or 40 million bushels. The most we've ever imported, I believe, is around 72 million bushels. That takes a more dynamic change to cause that to happen, um, but that's still a possibility.
All right. So we're watching for tighter bean stocks here in this report later today. Arlen, you also mentioned larger corn stocks are expected. December holding right now at around $5 on the board. How big a stockpile are traders anticipating on the corn side? Well, as we look at the corn side, it's a much different uh, different picture, obviously. They're looking for a crop overall um, that totals around 15.23 billion bushels, and I'm just a little bit below that. So the question is, will they reduce yield? And kind of the opposite of the soybean situation, because USDA's demand estimates for next year are already bloated, in my opinion. They already have a very bloated export target, a very bloated feed usage number, um, and they've already raised ethanol demand. Even though my ethanol number is above them, they may further raise that because cheap corn prices may facilitate those good margins to do so. Um, but they're going to have trouble raising demand much more, and they really don't want to push ending stocks closer to 3 billion bushels. So I think that'll push them to go ahead and make a reduction in yield for this report to kind of offset the increase of acreage. My yield is at 177, and I really, as a f former agronomist who walked a lot of cornfields, I feel pretty good about that number right now. My yield model is lower than that, but, I, but it's working its way higher with the weather that we're in, pattern that we're in right now. And I feel we're really good right now with a 177 yield going forward. But unfortunately, that still leaves us with ending stocks well above 2 billion bushels. So you really need to drop that yield well below uh, 170 bushels per acre, in my view, with the demand estimates I have before you start to tighten corn stocks for next year. All right, Arlen, we could see that potential come down the line. You mentioned ethanol demand could be strong there. Does, do you expect to see the price of crude oil continue to stay static or maybe climb a little bit to drive more ethanol demand? Well, that's a great question. Uh, right now, we're trading crude oil prices this morning uh, at the highest levels that we've seen for a couple of months, and uh, we're making new two-month highs or so. Uh, and I think that's starting to that's going to start causing a lot of the shorts in the crude oil market to start rethinking their positions and maybe give some more upward momentum, supporting the demand for the biofuels as well. The big question is now with uh, Saudi Arabia extending their one million barrel per day cuts in output, and Russia now adding another 500,000 barrels per day to those cuts as well. We're starting to tip the equation back toward being undersupplied. We're starting to get more of an inverse in the, in the oil market, and that suggests that demand is starting to exceed supply. And if the economy actually just does make a soft landing um, and comes back faster than, than what the market anticipated, the oil market anticipated, that demand starts climbing faster than you can turn that spigot back on. And in the current environment, political environment, there's not a lot of support for investments into fossil fuels. So getting that expanded production from the shale oil fields will be much more difficult to do. And even globally, being able to turn on some of those wells is going to be more difficult and take more time to do. And so we do risk those higher crude oil prices going forward if, in fact, we do see the economy start to outperform and that in itself could also be a greater support for the biofuels, yes. All right, Arlen, before we let you go, we had a lot of talk early this growing season about the dangers in the eastern Corn Belt for dryness. Now we've got moisture coming through. In your mind, which region of the U.S. has the most weather risk ahead before harvest? Yeah, I'm still concerned about kind of the Great Lakes into the northwestern Ag Belt. That's where the rain seemed to be missing out the most. We're also at the greatest risk of maybe seeing some heat periodically in the plains portion of the belt, so that's a concern. And, and that's where we're going to miss out. If you look at where the year's rains are coming, they're coming to kind of to the south and east of those levels, so that may be a problem going forward. Lots to watch here. We've got a long way before this crop comes out of the field. We'll get more details from the USDA later today in that World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimate Report. We've been breaking it down with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with StoneX. And Arlen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to have a conversation with Norita Taylor of the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association right here when AOA returns.
Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. On the first Wednesday of every month, we sit down with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association for a segment we call the Monthly Grind. We like to look into the uses for that corn crop once it leaves your farm. Joining us this week for the Monthly Grind, we're going to be talking with Troy Schneider of Colorado and Denny Vinacotter, corn grower from Ohio. Troy, I understand you've got a road trip coming up in the next couple of weeks. Where are you headed? Not only myself, but about 100 other team members from the seven action teams at National Corn Growers Association will be going to Washington, D.C., July 6th. 17th through the 20th for Corn Congress. 17th and 18th, we have action team meetings. And the 19th, we'll be going to the Hill to visit legislators. And then on the 20th, we will have Corn Congress where we conduct business twice a year. Denny, no doubt you'll be talking about the Consider Corn Challenge. Can you fill us in? So we have 20 entries in it, biomaterial products, different technologies that will use corn in a different way than animal feed. Thank you, Denny and Troy. Folks, learn more at ncga.com and tune in July 18th for the next Monthly Grind. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. On the internet, there are tons of special networking websites, but one stands apart. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. Did you know in the U.S., 19 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant? If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, please visit MatchingDonors.com. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder, being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. 
When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Today, you know, one thing I'm consistently amazed by in my conversation with listeners across the country is just how entrepreneurial folks in rural America are. Always out there looking to start a new business, develop a new income stream, and think outside the box. And for a lot of folks, we got to find a way to start businesses with what we've got. And a lot of folks in farm country have trucking equipment. Have you considered becoming an owner-operator? Well, it's tough. It's tough to get a small business going, failure rates are pretty high. By golly, it'd be nice to have some guidance if that was something you were starting. Well, good news. OIDA, the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association, is doing that very thing. Norita Taylor, their Director of Public Relations, joins us now. And Norita, fill us in on the Truck to Success class. What's OIDA putting together? Sure. So basically, we have a lot of educational opportunities for anyone interested in becoming an owner operator or an independent driver. We have an educational series that is uh, put on by a department within OOIDA called the OOIDA Foundation, which is the educational arm of the association. And we have Truck to Success coming up this fall. Um, Actually, it's October the 17th through the 19th, which is a course, a three-day course on everything you need to know to become an owner-operator. And you can choose to attend that in person or via Zoom. That's just one of the um, offerings that we have in our business education with OOIDA. And Norita, if somebody is interested, they're not currently affiliated with any association at all, but they're looking at this as a potential industry they want to be a part of, can they still attend or do you have to be a member? No, you do not have to be a member. We would like for you to be a member of the association for a lot of reasons. We we like uh, having members, but you do not have to be a member to attend. The pricing will be a little different, but uh, when you do sign up, if you do sign up before September 1st, you will receive a free year membership. Okay, so you can sign up, take the course, become a member, and stay active. Norita, where is the in-person going to be? And then how is the virtual aspect of this going to work? Sure. So the in-person part of this uh, educational series will be close to headquarters. We are located in Grain Valley, Missouri, which is in the Kansas City, Missouri metropolitan area. But the... um, The actual location will be in Blue Springs, Missouri, just down the street from where we are. And you can attend in person. I highly recommend doing so in person. I I personally think is always beneficial, but if for some reason you prefer or can't attend in person, you want to attend via Zoom, there will be a Zoom option where you would simply uh, be in the meeting uh, with everyone else, but on the screen instead. All right. So you've got that as an option as well, folks. If you can't make the trip to Blue Springs, you can certainly get on there, at least capture that information and educational value by joining virtually. Now, Norita, as you think about starting your own business, of course, there are a lot of ways to get into the trucking world, buy a new truck or buy a good used truck, buy a junk old truck, fix it up, make it roadworthy, or you can lease. I understand that's recently come under conversation in Washington, D.C. Can you talk a little bit about the lease purchase task force and what's happening there? Sure. So, you know, the basic models become for becoming an owner of a trucking business, you can lease to a carrier or you can be completely independent with your own authority. But there's another option out there that we tend to discourage here at OOID, and that's called a lease purchase. And what you're talking about with the most recent movements in Washington, D.C., is that they have formed a task force committee to take a look at this issue and about some of the predatory lending aspects. 
what we have seen over the years as an association is a lot of situations where people who are not familiar with trucking or are in, you know, um, underserved areas or maybe English as a second language, all kinds of in situations that they may be taken advantage of. And they sign on to these agreements and they end up owing more than they make because the motor carrier is the one lending the uh, the truck and also controlling how much money you make because they control how much you haul. And we think that that's something that should change. And so recently there was, I understand, a hearing in Washington, D.C. And Norita, it sounds like you're not the only folks who think this should change. That's right. So this truck leasing tax task force was formulated by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. And yesterday was the first meeting of that um, that task force, which is made up of several people from different aspects of the industry, some very interesting people. And pretty much everyone on the committee had some kind of concern to express about these types of agreements and how they are harmful to the industry and harmful harmful to individuals that sign them. All right. So this is just beginning, as I understand it. So no rules or changes expected soon, right? Just conversations continuing in D.C. on this topic, Narita? That, that's correct. Just conversations, reviewing, coming up with things that need to be looked at more closely and lists of, um, you know, things that they would like to accomplish as a task force committee. But we, we expect to see some good things come as a result, hopefully, in the future. All right. And I know there's more legislative uh, business awaiting truckers. Narita, anything you're watching to come in the next couple of weeks? Yes. Yeah, so basically, um, there is the GOT Act, G-O-T Act, which has to do with changing the FLSA uh, provision that was put in place decades ago that prevents truck drivers from getting overtime pay. And we have been working with lawmakers in D.C. to introduce legislation that would reverse that policy because we think that truck drivers should be paid for all of their time work. Keep an eye out, folks. The Got Truckers Act was introduced in the last Congress. It's coming back. We've been talking with Narita Taylor, the Director of Public Relations for the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association. And Narita, thanks for joining us today. Hey, anytime. Thank you so much, Mike. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk how agriculture upended Dutch politics. Tune in then for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are heading back to Washington, D.C. for the monthly grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 18th for our special one-year anniversary episode. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and we'll be reflecting on the year and what's ahead, along with current priorities of NCGA's Market Development Action Team. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 18th. It's a show you don't want to miss. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. 
For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.